Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Two View, the cutting-edge, informative, and interactive podcast for nurse practitioners and PAs in emergency and urgent care. I'm Martha Roberts, and I am a nurse practitioner in California. I am here today with my co-host, PA Michael Sharma. Hi, Mike. Hello, Martha. My name is Mike Sharma. I'm a practicing emergency medicine and urgent care PA in the Dallas, Texas area and an adjunct professor of PA studies. And uh, can I just say my heart is full right now? It's not only because I went to see the Taylor Swift concert film this past weekend. Uh, I did not get up and dance. I did sing. My heart is full because I got to see it with two of my daughters, Geeka and Mima. Geeka was home for the first time from college, and she and Mima and my youngest daughter, Squish, are all Swifties to varying degrees. Uh, Squish couldn't join us. She had to go hold it down on the volleyball court. I'm super proud of her progress this year, despite nursing a little Osgood Slaughter's disease. You know, she's like, Daddy, my knee hurts. And I was like, Oh, I know this one. I know this one. Uh, you know, my son Goon does not get down with the sick beats of Taylor Swift, but he did love the leftover popcorn that we brought home in our commemorative Taylor Swift popcorn bucket. It's uh, it's metal. It's very classy. Uh, speaking of hearts being full, uh, what's going on with your heart? Well, I can't wait to get to segment number three today to tell you all about a little update that both touched me personally and medically and God, do I hate insurance. Um, so actually, you know, what I wanted to share with you is that I recently resigned from my full-time teaching position with Samuel Merritt. I was, I was wondering about that. Yeah. yeah I was um, I was actually teaching in the undergraduate school more than I was teaching in the graduate school. And Ooh. I was really just overcommitting myself to, to teaching and doing too much. And so I had to resign. And although I have multiple jobs, I mean, I think I have about six jobs actually documented. That was my full-time job. So believe it or not, I had to file for COBRA. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later in the show, but just, you know, a short kind of blurb on that. It ain't easy and it's extremely expensive. I've been there too. I'm so sorry that you're going through that right now. Yeah. Well, speaking of work and such, I, I did it. I put in my schedule request to be off my worst schedule for the original emergency medicine boot camp. It's all happening on December 12th through 15th at the iconic Cedars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada. December 12th through 15th for the main course and uh, two pre-course days, as everyone knows, for our pharmacology, ultrasound, and procedure courses. Those are December 10th and 11th. It's not too late for you to come join us in Las Vegas for boot camp, uh, but you know the deal with how EDs and urgent care schedule don't wait the time is now to make sure you get all the things done you know blocking the schedule course registration hotels flights you can join us in vegas pause the podcast pull over to the side of the road right now safety first folks uh, you know uh, you too just kicked off a residency at a brand new theater that's fear down on the strip it looks tremendous um you're completely enveloped in this video screen during the show uh, it looks bonkers i'm so excited to check that out if you're already looking ahead like me to 2024 i've already got like some of my speaking engagements kind of getting lined up for the next year you're in luck as well we just opened up registration for the emergency medicine and acute care courses that we hold all over north america and we're retooling those a bit this year yeah, I'm actually going to talk about that a little bit when we do a new segment uh, topic here on visual diagnosis from our manual book, which I'll show you last year's manual here. Oh my here. goodness, that is I nice. Know. Yeah, it's uh, really fun and exciting. But um, we all know that uh, I'll be at the course because I don't have a full-time job anymore. I don't have to worry about <laughs> scheduling. Uh, so I'll see you all there. It's going to be great. We're going to have uh, just 2023 studies 
in this next course. Only from 2023, it's the new hotness. And each set of studies is going to be covered by two instructors. And uh, it's stuff like this that really like lights my fire about going back to boot camp. Like, yes, I love standing on the stage and giving lectures. But it's the in-between, the, the panel discussions, where real people, real clinicians who are in the trenches like all of us, rapping about emergency medicine and urgent care topics, pushing back at each other, finding disagreements, finding common ground. I, I just love that sort of stuff. And that's, that's what it's going to be more of uh, in 2024 with the emergency medicine and acute care course. Yeah, super excited. I'm going to be in the Keys as well as potentially New York. I have to... Well, gosh, I don't need to look at any schedule, do I? Anyway, <laughs> moving forward, I want to get right into segment one, Mike. Um, you know, I joke about uh, my jobs and everything, but quite frankly, if you're someone that has four, five, six, and seven 1099s and, you know, you're working in the emergency department, I do still do that. It's like you forget about the fact that you're working two or three shifts in the ER a week. You really don't need to add more to your plate if you're feeling overwhelmed. So don't feel bad about that. I certainly don't. So anyway. I think it's great that you took your own pulse a bit and, and decided like this is not serving like a, a, a future goal. Like, yeah. you know, because like, yeah, there's no shortage of things we could do. But um, yeah, you have to ask yourself sometimes like why and, and to what end am I doing this thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it good for you. Give me more time to research our topics uh, this this month. In fact, there you go. I actually wanted to read a lot more about phenylephrine, which is what I wanted to talk to you about first here. In the Let's past, go. yeah, the past few weeks, the FDA has released a statement about oral phenylephrine, and the FDA held this non-prescription drug advisory committee back in early September to discuss the effectiveness of oral phenylephrine as an active ingredient in over-the-counter cough and cold products and allergy meds, both as a single ingredient product and in combination with other ingredients. At prior boot camps and courses, I've talked about these different snake oils and ineffective treatments for colds, flus, and allergies. I still had a little bit of confidence in phenylephrine, um, but it looks like this winter I'm going to have to be revising the slides. So <laughs> the current scientific data does not support the recommended dosage of orally administered phenylephrine as uh, it being effective as a nasal decongestant. However, Neither the FDA nor this committee raised concerns about the safety of the drug. And that's what brings us to sort of this uh, crossroads. As we know, many um, over-the-counter medications, including just phenylephrine itself, um, they're sold anywhere and everywhere, and sometimes at really high prices and claim that they do a lot of really great things. But what the FDA really needs to do now is work closely with the manufacturers that put this ingredient in there to reformulate their products as needed to help ensure the, um, the availability and the safety and the effectiveness of this particular drug, phenylephrine. Um, you know, we already know when patients come into the ER or urgent care with over-the-counter cold medicines are saying this isn't working. I always tell people taking a combination drug is not worth your time. If you need Tylenol and Motrin, then take those two drugs separately. With the decongestant, you don't need all the other ingredients in these crazy expensive over-the-counter uh, medications. However, um, the FDA really wants to make sure that we're broadcasting the right information to consumers. So patients are telling you that they're taking these medications. They should also know that they could potentially uh, be wasting their money, right? So we need to make sure that we let them know that and then maybe give them something that might actually work, which is a whole nother podcast, podcast discussion where you come to the course this year and hear the new talk. But anyway, phenylephrine is also an active ingredient in just those nasal sprays to keep treat congestion. 
And we have to look at all these different products that phenylephrine is in. The FDA remains committed to using all their tools to ensure the safety and efficacy of the drug-related products that are out there. And really, it's just important for us as clinicians to keep up on that. So stay tuned to the news and make sure that you do your due diligence and research on this product. I think a lot of patients freak out when they're like on day four or five and they're like, I'm uh, of a URI. They're like, I'm taking medicines and I'm not getting better, you know? So I think there's opportunity number one for us to ask the next question, what exactly are you taking? So phenylephrine is what's in Sudafed PE, as far as the brand name, it's in Dayquil, it's in NyQuil, it's in Theraflu. And like I tell the patients as well, like you, Martha, it's like you're taking a bunch of weak drugs together. What I would love for you to try is take the drugs that you need for the symptoms that you're really having. So go ahead and get that Sudafed, pseudoephedrine. Go ahead and get that guaifenesin. And then just take what you need. If you don't, if you're not in pain, don't take the Tylenol or the motion that comes in these combination drugs. And so, uh, you know, I, I have definitely a little dot phrase for my cold medications that I tell, like I give them a list. This is what you take for your symptoms. Uh, what medication goes with what symptom? I have a variant for people with high blood pressure. I have a variant for kids above six, kids under six, breastfeeding uh, women, pregnant women. So like, I don't spend a lot of time on these patients. It sounds like it's a lot of work, but once you do that, like you set that up, you can very easily dash off a quick, very detailed list of things depending on the patient population, and off they go with, with more information. So uh, that's really interesting about the Sudafed PE. It's almost like the um, the oral GAN, right? We were always yeah. like, get you some oral GAN for your ear pain, and all of a sudden it's like, no more oral GAN doesn't work. You're like, what do you mean does it work? I've been telling patients for like a decade that yeah. it works. So I, well, I wonder if uh, we'll see what else gets delisted here in a little bit. I'll tell you that I've read the studies. There are multiple studies that show that patients have had effective symptom relief from higher doses of phenylephrine. They will mm. they will treat their symptoms, um, but not necessarily aid in the speed of recovery. And having taken the drug myself, you can feel when the drug actually is doing something. But of course, I wasn't taking just the dose that was in the box. But um, it doesn't last very long. So... Mm. Uh, again, my personal experience doesn't really matter. The FDA is looking more into this. We're going to figure out if there are going to be some new studies. I'm going to revisit some of these older studies. And then maybe next podcast we can have an update for you about where we are with this. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, as we reported previously, syphilis cases are on the rise from 2017 whoa, to 2020. Whoa, 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 Mike, you're just gonna Wait. you're just gonna roll right into syphilis I'm like that. I'm rolling right into syphilis. How <laughs> else is there? How else do you roll into syphilis but directly? Yeah, <laughs> a frontal right. assault on syphilis. Here we go, Mike segment on syphilis. <laughs> Well, from 2070 to 2021, reported reported cases of syphilis went up 74%, which means there's even more cases that are undiagnosed and unreported. Let's talk neurosyphilis specifically, one of the potentially emergent complications of untreated syphilis. The journal Clinical Infectious Diseases recently published a state-of-the-art review on that topic of neurosyphilis. Presentation can be pretty varied. Like, you can have a full-on, legit thrombotic stroke. Uh, you can have non-stroke weakness or paralysis, or that symptom of tabes dorsalis that we all learned in PA and NP school. You have a kind of like paresthesias, hyposthesias that progress to full-on like ataxia, 
personality changes, dementia, and other like horrifying things. This review article talks about when to do an LP in a patient with syphilis, how parenteral penicillin is still the treatment of choice for neurosyphilis specifically, and other considerations. But I mainly wanted to bring this up because how many times do we see patients in the ED, the urgent care, with weird just like paresthesias that don't quite map out to like, you know, uh, an ulnar neuropathy or a carpal tunnel thing? Lots of times, you know, could it be time to start screening appropriate patients with paresthesias, hyposthesias for syphilis in an attempt to head off more serious manifestations of the neurosyphilis? I mean, especially if you happen to already be drawing other blood tests on them anyways, what's another tube or two, you know? If you're not considering neurosyphilis, you'll never make the diagnosis. So consider it in the right patient. Consider reviewing this guideline. We'll have links to it on our website. That's twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number twoview.fireside.fm. You know, uh, this gets us into another discussion about the treatment of syphilis with penicillin. So we currently had a shortage of penicillin where we oh, were. Yeah. And Nature so we're, um, you know, of course, moving on to doxycycline. And I think that makes it really difficult for patients because the penicillin's so easy, you know? Doxycycline, not so much. I mean, it's, not, you up. it's not horrible. But uh, anyway, I just think that's something to think about and... You know, again, keep your finger on the pulse of that for sure. Doxy's so hard. Um, I recall patients in Afghanistan, we all took doxycycline, or we're supposed to, for malaria prophylaxis. And I'd have patients come and tell me, I'll take the malaria because I'm just getting destroyed by this doxycycline. And so um, just then and, and, and now, I have, I tell them, but when I'm prescribing it to them, there are ways to take it to minimize side effects, right? Not just GI, but also sun sensitivity. So I've got stuff in your paperwork. Make sure the nurse shows you these instructions on how to best take your doxycycline. We can assist them in, in compliance for sure. But there, there are things we have to do. We can't just kind of like leave it to them to read the package insert. We've got to highlight this to them. Yeah, you know, now I know why in the zombie apocalypse shows that we watch, you know, they're always hoarding. They, they hold up this like medicine bottle and it always says penicillin because that's the most important drug, right, in the zombie that's apocalypse. Why all, that's the reason for the zombies is they all have neurosyphilis. <laughs> okay, <laughs> moving on to segment two. For segment two, we want to highlight an interesting trend that we've got going on in our CCME courses called visual diagnosis. Now, I understand that a photo can tell a thousand words. So with that being said, if you're able to take a photo of a patient and put it in the chart, do it. If it's a rash, especially. But even if it's like my hand hurts, put both hands together. Take a picture of both hands. Take a picture of the side of the hands. Take a picture of the elbow, you know, the the um, the distal and proximal joints of whatever you're imaging. Very important. Do that if you can. I've gotten some recent compliments of that in my triage notes because I've been doing a lot of quick express triaging for patients. Um, however, if you can get a photo, do it. But if you can't, what I want to talk about is being able to communicate with your specialists what you're seeing and translating that visual information without a photo. So you might, you know, with technology today, you certainly can find a way. But in our books for the critical appraisal courses, again, I'm showing it on the screen here, but when you open up our visual diagnosis uh, packet for this particular case that I'm going to talk about, we give you the three important things you need to know, and then that way you're literally memorizing this visual diagnosis of what's going on with this patient while you're learning. Um, well, I'll talk a little bit more about the case in a moment. 
but uh, Mike. Yeah, you- so you, that's just the uh, that's the emergency medicine and acute care course we've been talking about here, right? So that you can get more information about the locations at ccme.org for that. But you were asking me a question. I'm so sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, no, I wanted to ask you a question when you. So you're talking about syphilis. So I kind of <laughs> wanted to. <laughs> continue on that path but okay. i i want you to think about something other than syphilis if you can for just a minute how, how okay? can i i mean like <laughs> who doesn't think about syphilis it's just, like that that what that that's that meme of like asking men how often do you think about um ancient rome right, right. Oh, God, <laughs> how often please. do you think about neurosyphilis every day like oh yeah every 10 minutes i think about neurosyphilis i don't know well moving on to the case here we go so it's, uh, we give you the case, by the way. I'm going to also kind of talk about how we present this information to you because I think it's super helpful for learning. It's a 30-year-old, previously healthy male. He presents to urgent care with many complaints. Several days ago, he had fatigue and photophobia. Around that time, he noticed painful ulcers in his mouth and on his genitals. He denied any medical history, allergies, and takes no medications. He doesn't take any illicit drugs or uses alcohol. His vital signs are within a normal range, and his acuity for his vision is normal, but he does have pretty significant photophobia. And when you examine him, Mike, you see the following. Right. You see a really angry eye, bright red, angry eye upon just your superficial kind of like from the door look. And then he kind of pulls down his lip and you see these like thin, kind of whitish, grayish, um, kind of flat ulcers to the inside of the lip, the kind of like the, I guess, the wet vermilion there inside the lip, the buccal mucosa. There's also just generalized erythema to the buccal mucosa. And then then he, he goes downtown, he pulls out some genital lesions. He has these irregularly shaped, like relatively large, two to three centimeter ulcers. Again, superficial, not really a lot of bleeding, no pus. And there's kind of some just swelling around those ulcers downstairs. So part of this case study we go through now, it's a real short case with a couple of photos. We give you 10 questions or so to ask yourself so you can visualize how you would approach this patient. So we go over the 10 questions before proceeding. There are quite a few in this booklet. I'm going to highlight a few. But essentially, you know, what else do you want to know about this patient? It's important we ask this patient about recent travel, family history, similar symptoms, Um, history of the same complaints in the past, you know, sexual history, any topical treatments, trauma, other recent infections, underlying medical problems, so on and so forth. It's really important to know how to talk about the eye, especially if you're going to consult an ophthalmologist, right? You can't just be like, uh, well, it's real red. You know, they're gonna be like, all right, I'll just come and see. I'm like, don't worry about it, right? Like, I, I talk about this in my eye lecture at boot camp, but certain things you want to comment on, you know, either like, you know, positive or negative findings for certain aspects of the eye. So, in, in this person, he would have limbic flush, okay? So, you call that ciliary flush or limbic flush. So, that area just adjacent to the iris, okay, to the sclera, the white of the eye, just adjacent to the iris or the cornea, that's where we see kind of exaggerated redness right there. Um, There is even a hypopion, you know, so in the bottom of the anterior chamber, you see a little bit of white blood cells layering out there. There's also photophobia, quite severe photophobia. So when I think about red eyes, ciliary flush, photophobia, I'm worried about iritis or uveitis. I don't think this is something superficial, right? A conjunctivitis, 
um, does not really, like a pink eye, doesn't really cause that photophobia. You shouldn't see a concentration of the limbus there for the injection, right? So there's a lot of reasons for iritis or uveitis. Like we're talking about, well, we'll get to that in a second. I want to jump on, you know, still your thunder here. Lots of possible reasons. Um, but when you couple it with the genital lesions and, and, and the lip lesions are, we're thinking maybe like tuberculosis, our pal syphilis, even like leprosy, sarcoid, reactive arthritis, and even like there's a lot of inflammatory diseases. Okay, Bessay's is one of them as well. So lots of things to think about. So, you know, they say that the eyes are the window to the soul, right? So I really, I mean, of course, that means something totally different. But in my opinion, in the medical world, they are, they tell us so much about how a patient is doing. If the eyes involved, it automatically puts you on a totally different path. And I think it's really important that, again, I've stressed this in all of our previous podcasts. If you don't know how to do a good eye exam, you better figure that out real soon, okay? Like you need to go Put your hands on the slit lamp. You need to learn how to touch an eye in a patient and communicate what these eye words are. You know, the, like you said, like the ophthalmologist is like, um, okay, well, do you have any more information? Right. You know? So you need to be really good at this. But going forward, um, this patient's oral lesions can be described as ulcerations, you know, as we talked about in his inner lip, that are may be associated with something like herpes simplex, okay? But again, when you're already going down this road, you need to think, well, is it unilateral? Um, is there potentially a, a history of this? Like, is this maybe, are we thinking like, is it shingles? Does shingles go in the mouth? Like, these are questions you should be asking yourself to help rule out what it is and what it's not. Um, oral lesions can certainly be something related to Epstein-Barr or syphilis mm. or allergic reactions or celiac disease, erythema multiforme, or even, of course, Coxsackie's, right? So, and that's a viral thing. So we want to make sure that we aren't uh, going too far deviating from this patient's, you know, three main symptoms here. But this patient also has a genital lesion. So that's where we're really going, okay. Um, I'm, I'm definitely thinking some other stuff here. Yeah, I think it's tempting, you know, just like the, the, the joke about, you know, the, the, what is the most missed broken bone on somebody? It's the second broken bone, right? You, <laughs> everyone goes to the open angulated fracture and they may, might miss the other little fracture somewhere else. So in that same vein, this person's like, I've got genital symptoms. And you might, I might already think like, oh, genital symptoms, that must mean you have an STD like herpes or chancroid or something like that. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of other things that cause genital lesions. Okay, Stephen Johnson's, we've mentioned, I think, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease, and we even mentioned Bisset's disease earlier that can cause um, eye symptoms like this person may have. So, like, I just want to go down this road of saying, okay, get the STD testing, yes. Okay, get the syphilis testing, yes. A CBC and maybe adding on a SED rate or C-reactive protein. But let's say the syphilis test comes back and it's negative. Um, this patient ended up having Bissette's disease. I was saying it wrong this whole time, wasn't I? Bissette's. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's. I have always heard it pronounced Bissette's. Again, this is not really a typical diagnosis we are making in the ER. But, um, and again, it's also a rare disorder. So I did some learning about this as well. But... 
To know more about this, this essentially is a syndrome or disease that's characterized by these recurrent oral ulcers, genital ulcers, uveitis, and it really can't be missed in the emergency department. So um, uh, Bissette's is essentially a rare multi-system inflammatory disorder characterized by ulcers affecting the mouth and the genitals, various skin lesions, abnormalities affecting the eyes as we talked about. But what's important here is that if you miss this, it can lead to permanent blindness. And also, it can lead to chronic pain in the joints, problems with the vascular system, problems with blood vessels, central nervous system, and the digestive tract. This is kind of idiopathic, this besets. Did I get it? Besets? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> You'll allow it? Thanks. <laughs> you know, it's kind of idiopathic. We don't know why people get besets syndrome. It is most prevalent in Middle Eastern and Far Eastern ethnicities more common among men than women. There can be other things that go along with this too. They can have pustular vasculitis, meningoencephalitis, synovitis, like joint stuff. So like uh, lots of um, other things that may be going on beyond what you just heard there as far as eye, lip, and genitals. Like Martha mentioned, if like if we miss this kind of uveitis, this can go on to cause vision loss, even blindness. There is no like Bessette's test, unfortunately, but you kind of have to make that diagnosis putting it all together here. Oral tetracycline for the ulcers in the mouth and systemic corticosteroids have been used in the past to treat this disease. Whenever I see a patient where I'm suspecting iritis, uveitis, I want that person in front of an ophthalmologist. And depending on how bad it is, either that day or in the next few days, because of all the different reasons for iritis and uveitis, we mentioned a couple earlier in the uh, in the segment. Yeah. So besides the fact that the syphilis test was negative, how can we tell the difference between this disorder and disease and syphilis? So Bissette's disease is a bilateral panuveitis. Other inflammatory processes that affect both eyes certainly must be considered, but syphilis causes a retinitis with vitreitis rather than a strict vasculitis. So the diagnosis for syphilis here is confirmed by serology. If it's not positive, then it's not syphilis. Mm. So we know vascular um, disorders and vasculitis, it's difficult. We, we get it. We, we want to keep up with these patients asking the right questions, going in our stepwise approach. Don't deviate too far from um, the plan. You know, don't hang your hat on a specific algorithm. Ask more questions, go back and needed, and certainly get that second opinion from someone that can really help you out here. And hey, come to our critical care appraisal courses and you can do some more visual diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mentioned neurosyphilis, but just to go back to that well briefly, like you said, there can be ocular manifestations of syphilis too. So yeah, it's like really tricky and this is a tough diagnosis besets, but it's cool that we talked about that. It's cool that we have those very high quality images in our book as well. Well, another month, another ASAP clinical policy, this time on acute ischemic stroke, published earlier this year. I wanted to focus on my half of the segment on the clinical decision guidelines they recommend when it comes to identifying large vessel occlusion strokes or LVOs. This may be important because patients with acute LVOs generally presenting within 24 hours from their last known normal may be candidates for endovascular thrombectomy or EVT you know, interventional radiology stuff. Knowing this early in a patient's course is important because it directs where patients should be transported for their stroke care in a situation where time is of the essence. In one of my most recent departments, we used the VAN score to help identify LVOs, patients who had weakness and 
one of the more of the following. Visual disturbance, aphasia, neglect. V-A-N, hence the acronym VAN. You have to have weakness and one of those things. At the time of the publication of the clinical policy, ASAP described the strength of the one study behind the VAN score as class 3, even though the VAN score in that study was 100% sensitive and had a likelihood ratio of 10 for LVO, the study only evaluated 62 patients, so relatively small. The scoring symptoms that this ASAP clinical policy recommends are the LAMS and RACE. And ASAP described both class 2 and class 3 studies that supported their use, thousands of patients in the aggregate among multiple studies, including one that they described as class 2 with over 2,000 patients. The LAMS score is the Los Angeles motor scale, grade facial droop, arm drift, and grip strength, again, with the intent of identifying a big stroke, a large vessel occlusion stroke, and sending this patient to the right hospital um, for the definitive care. The other scoring system is the RACE score, which stands, oddly enough, for Rapid Arterial Occlusion Evaluation. They use the C in occlusion to make the acronym, I guess I'll allow it. Anyway, this one grades, it. yeah, I mean, what can I do but allow it? <laughs> um, this grades facial palsy, arm and leg motor impairment, head and gaze deviation, and hemiparesis. The highest level study that covered both LAMS and RACE scores suggested lower sensitivity scores in the VAN system, 38%, 56% respectively, but they were both highly specific. In the 90s, like the VAN score, with positive likelihood ratios greater than 5 for LVO stroke in those um, class 2 studies. In the end, if you're working in an ED, your group probably already has decided which scoring system they're going to use to identify LVOs. Use the one your group uses in your ED. However, let's say you see this patient outside of an ED. You're working in urgent care. You know the deal. Legit medical emergencies walk into urgent care all the time. If someone comes in that could be having a stroke, using one of these scoring systems could help guide you about where this patient needs to go, ideally by ambulance in case they decompensate on the ride over. We're going to have links to all these different scores on MDCalc, that clinical policy, which covers decisions also beyond the scoring systems. There's discussions about best imaging, best thrombolytics, evaluating vertigo with potential stroke here on our website. That is, again, 2view.fireside.fm. That's number 2view.fireside.fm. Martha, your department, um, do they use any of these scoring systems to further stratify stroke patients? I'm betting they use LAMS because, like, you know, California. Yeah, we do. But okay. what I think is even more important here is that you attend your yearly stroke training on your uh, portal. You know, a lot of the times you get these training things and you're like, God, this is such a waste of my time. But this is one thing that you definitely want to renew and refresh. It's the same thing with like your STEMI protocol or like your active shooter protocol. Like these are all things that you need to be completely 100% up to date on. And it's not a waste of your time. Maybe like the review of like the OSHA protocols, maybe not so much your favorite thing. Okay, <laughs> fine. But if you're actually going to pay attention to something, I know, look, we got a lot going on. Review this one. You need to know exactly how you treat these patients in your ER. And, and I think the the best fallback plan here is you should have some sort of point of care guide that you can just go over to a cart and just whip out. Like someone's having a stroke, uh, you know, symptoms, you grab like the procedure guide. Like uh, Scott Weingart has this book 
um, the name alludes to right now, but basically it is kind of like your checklist when something really bad happens. You just whip out the book and you start going through this checklist. I know Chip Lang could be listening and he's screaming at the computer right now because he loves this book. Um, but basically this is this would be something that you should maybe consider having. Like, don't just rely on your memory during this sort of situation when somebody could be having a stroke and time is a factor, as uh, Mr. Wolf says in Pulp Fiction. Um, you know, have a guide to where you go, you know what, I'm kind of stressed out right now. I'm pulling my guide out and I'm just going to go step by step so I don't miss anything important. Is it the RCM, the Resuscitation Crisis Manual? Yes, thank yeah. you. It is the RCM. God, God bless you yeah. for saving me on that one. Thank you so much. Yeah. Major shout outs uh, to Scott because he has put in tons and tons of videos for Robertson Hedges over the years. I was just reviewing a few. So hmm. we'll give him a nice shout out there. I did shout him out on the the Omi Manifesto. I did a, a, a course on um, the new hotness and EKG interpretation, and he's one of the authors of that with with Dr. Myers, Dr. Smith. So yeah, good for Scott Weinberg there. Well, it is time for our last segment, what we call Oral Contrast, where we get into all the nooks and crannies of a topic, and I have been dying to talk to you about this. Let's go. I don't even know if I have the energy or the <laughs> the the blood pumping to do it, but I'll, I'll get through it. Actually, I'm very depressed about it. You know, it's Aww. so, you know, you hear me joke about stuff all the time. I'm a good joker. I like, I like to make things tolerable, but this one, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, Martha, you make things beyond tolerable. If, if there's one thing I say about Martha Roberts, it is this, she makes things be better than tolerable. That's, that's uh, what I say awesome. about Martha Roberts. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so I want to talk, like I said earlier when we started off this segment, about something very personal that happened to me. And I know I've mentioned some of my health issues in the past, but I really think that it's kind of nice to sympathize and empathize because it's just like when you're a patient in the ER or you have a family member in the hospital, you know, you have a completely new understanding when that patient comes up to you and is like, can I have a, a cup of water? And you're like, yeah. mm. I don't, I don't have time to go get that, but you're like, oh yeah, you know what? Let me go grab that real quick right. because there's just so many things that we forget or we get burnt out on. So anyway, moving forward on the story. Um, yeah, this problem I had recently would basically send just about anyone to the ER in fear and disbelief, but not me. I stayed home, not bragging about it, but yeah, well it's, it's a lesson for sure. Um, but honestly, I was sitting here, I'll tell you the whole story, but I was sitting here, I'm like, eh, what are they going to do? You know, what are they going to do? Probably nothing. So I'm not going. So last Saturday, I was at a soccer game and I stopped for lunch in the middle of my Peruvian steak sandwich. I felt like I was dying, like dying. Let me explain. I felt a clunk in my chest and then my heart stopped beating. I know these all sound like weird things. And then the sides of my eyes started going black. And then all of a sudden I snapped out of it and I was okay. It's lasted about 15 to 20 seconds. And if you remember a few years back, um, actually a few months back, we talked about uh, the, the Zio patch and loop recorders and cardiac monitoring and Holter monitors and things like that. And when we put them on patients in the ER and when we don't. And long story short, I have had known SVT pretty much my whole life. And at one point, they thought maybe it could be WPW, but it really turned out to just be that nuisance of an SVT. Um, but again, a supraventricular tachycardia. And so back maybe a couple of years ago, I had an implanted loop recorder and I still have it. I just had the battery changed last year to see if I really needed to end up having an ablation because it was a big deal for me to want to do those surgeries over and over again. 
So I wanted to see how bad these rhythms were. So I felt this clunk. I felt like I was dying and I was kind of pre-syncable here. And so I went to my phone app and I pushed record, which records five minutes before and five minutes after the event that you document. It's really amazing from Medtronic. Love them. Super shout out to this technology. I was feeling really horrible. I was weak. I was dizzy, confused. I was scared. And I was like, well, I have to wait till Monday until the cardiology office, you know, lets me know what's going on. Right. And I was thinking this feels different than my usual SVT. Okay, so just, um, just for my own edification here, so you hit record, and it goes back in time five minutes before you hit record. Mm-hmm. It doesn't show you what the rhythm is at that point, but it no. captures it and sends it. Otherwise, yeah. if you didn't hit record, would it have still sent it to Medtronic or no? Yes. Um, <laughs> it keeps a lifetime recording um, oh, of wow. your heartbeats, every heartbeat that you have for usually lasts about two to three years. But it doesn't necessarily alert anybody, right? Like if you have – you can set parameters. Mm. So if your heart rate is above 185, it will automatically um, send the documentation to your cardiologist. But you can't with this technology currently see your, your current rhythm. Now, there's other recorders that do that, but mine does not. So um, – I went back into normal sinus rhythm. I didn't have any more episodes. Uh, but two days later, you bet I got that call from the cardiology office. I saw UC Davis cardiology calling me, and I knew it wasn't going to be good. Like, I knew if they're calling me, right. that's a problem. That's like when uh, you see the caller ID in, in the department. It's like radiology's calling. You're like, oh, God, <laughs> like, what's what's wrong? <laughs> what do they find? Okay, what did UC Davis cardiology tell you? So uh, the nurse said, you know, uh, I wanted to first ask you if you're feeling okay. And I was like, yeah, I feel fine. And she goes, well, I wanted to let you know that you had a pretty significant episode of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. You went into VTAC. Is that what we're talking about here? I did. Oh, my gosh. That is terrible. So I said, listen, you know, I work in the emergency department. I've actually worked in cardiology before um, briefly, and I want to see my rhythm strip. So she said, sure, sure. I'll send it to you right away. Um, and there it was, uh, it was surreal right there on my phone, looking at it, a tracing from those moments where I felt those symptoms, 10 full seconds of giant Mm. real life VTAC, big, wide, scary, monomorphic ventricular tachycardia. I literally almost threw up. That explains the clunk, I suppose. Now, do you you are um, an Apple Watch person, yes? Mm-hmm. So doesn't that have some like a one lead or something? Oh, yeah, but my I wasn't wearing my watch that day, Mike. You would think <laughs> of, that I would have it, of right? Of course you weren't. <laughs> why, why would you be? Yep. So, are you, do you wear it now like all the time, just in yeah, case? I do. I do. I was wearing it for quite some time. And, and we've talked about case studies, single case studies that are courses of patients who have documented their VTech and brought it in, and we have saved their lives. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I did put the tracing for our show notes to share. I can't share my screen for this one. Maybe Dave can allow me to do that while I finish kind of moving forward here. We but can again, do it in post as well. Yeah, you know, sure. We can... But basically, uh, I there it is. I'm looking right at it. I want you just to envision what VTAC looks like, and that's what it was. Like textbook monomorphic VTAC. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you've Ugh. seen it. I sent it to you, Mike. Yeah, it's yep. pretty pretty gross, really. But when I spoke to my cardiologist and electrophysiologist, I put my work cap on because I, I, I honestly, I went home and I was, I was first sobbing. Actually, to tell you the truth, um, 
I started updating my will. I called my mom. I told my partner what kind of casket I wanted. I made sure to go get my hair done, actually. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, of course. That's the checklist. Uh, That's my checklist as well. Get my hair done. Yeah, I had the day off. And uh, I looked at buying an AED on Amazon Prime, which you can buy, by the way. They're like $2,000. When could it be delivered, I thought? Uh, When am I going to get my defib pacer? When am I going to have surgery? What are my alternatives? When's my sudden cardiac arrest going to happen? I mean, it was really bad. So I have questions, right? I have questions. The AED you buy on Amazon Prime, is it an Amazon Prime branded AED? Like if you buy batteries on Amazon Prime, it says Amazon on it, right? If you buy like, uh, I don't know, what else can you buy that says Amazon? Like a lot of stuff, they sell Amazon stuff. So is this like an Amazon AED? So um, yes and no. So it doesn't actually have the branding on it. It's not made by Amazon. There's there's, missed opportunity, honestly. They are capitalizing on selling them, certainly. But they they sell one from Philips that is actually the American um, Heart Association ones that they've used. They sell the uh, replacement batteries for the the package, the – uh, ones that you see like in the mall and stuff. You typically yeah, yeah. Phillips. Um, there's the Heartstat. That's a legit brand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and American AED. I mean, basically, you can buy them anywhere. Um, but you could always like get it and like uh, you know keep it in the wrap and like save the receipt and uh, you know. Oh, my mom. My mom's already sent me one. It should be here tonight. <laughs> okay. So. Good. Uh, but I, listen, just for our listeners, this is not what you should be doing necessarily. I'm gonna. We're going to talk about VTAC, okay? We're going to talk about it, and I want to give us sort of a, a, a more organized look at this for purposes of education and also sharing my story because it's it's been very upsetting. I Like I said, I did speak to the cardiologist, my electrophysiologist. I've had multiple in my career as a human being, and they all know me very well. But at UC Davis, I spoke to them. And they said, well, you know, this is a non-sustained, right? This is, it was 10 right. seconds. Um, you could have had more of these when you were younger or that we didn't catch before your loop recorder, but you caught this one. Like, here it is. We can't ignore it, but can we? So we're, we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but really, I want to talk about, you know, how and why and what non-sustained VTAC is, what we know about it and how, what we're doing currently to treat it. You know, I, I totally like we were, we've been kind of like speaking about this really like scary topic in somewhat of a lighthearted manner, but I totally see this happening to somebody, uh, one of us, somebody listening right now. Um, you know, someone rolls in and says like chief complaint palpitations, and they pull out their iPhone or whatever and goes, "This is what it showed. This looks kind of funny. What would this be?" And you're like, "Oh, that's a VTAC." You know, so I, I can totally see this happening, especially with all these wearables that are out there. So let's talk about VTAC. Um, Quickly, you know, a healthy heart rate is between 60 to 100 times a minute in an adult patient at rest. But when you have ventricular tachycardia, like the innate ventricular pacing rate is somewhere on the order of 20 to 40 beats per minute, right? But this is ventricular tachycardia where the ventricles take over as far as pacing and tachycardia. They're going faster than their innate pacing rate. So faster usually is about 100 plus beats per minute. This is from some sort of irritation in the ventricles usually. And there's lots of reasons why the ventricles can get upset. Sometimes this is going so fast that the ventricles can't fill with blood from the atria. And so, yes, the ventricles are squeezing still in an organized fashion, thank goodness, but they're squeezing uh, with empty chambers. And so we're not pumping enough blood to the body. And so patients feel 
dyspnea, they feel um, dizziness, they may have this kind of fluttering palpitations in their chest, or they might straight up fall out and, and, and go syncopal. This can be very brief and last like a couple seconds like had uh, you had without causing like harm as far as like that episode that you had thankfully didn't cause any sort of damage like i bet you wouldn't even have elevated troponins if they had run them on you but but episodes that last more than a few seconds that we would call sustained yours was non-sustained a more sustained vtac can truly be life-threatening and it can even cause sudden cardiac arrest yeah, and we know we've seen patients that are just in, in VTAC. I've seen young people just sitting in VTAC like until we figure out like what we're doing next. Mm. You know, they don't necessarily die right then and there, but it can lead to sudden cardiac arrest. So what are some causes? I wanted to point out this for our listeners. When patients come in, let's say they have that complaint, but let's talk about some of these really classic complaints that patients will say or uh, histories that should pique your interest and be concerned about this fatal arrhythmia potentially fatal arrhythmia. So causes prior MI or other heart conditions that cause some kind of scarring. So this is really important. Having talked to a lot of cardiologists over the years, is there scarring? So why are we getting the echo? We want to look at the structural aspects of the heart. We want to see, is there some area of scarring? Is there damage to the heart tissue um, or some damage somewhere else in the valves, um, arteries, et cetera? Um, and when we move forward with that echo and stress tap quickly, we can we can rule out those structural issues, sometimes even a catheterization to look, of course. So a thorough history of the patient's cardiac and respiratory health, including valvular disease as well as other arrhythmias, even as a child, are important in your, important in your questioning. Another cause is simply poor blood flow to the heart muscle due to coronary artery disease. And as we know, there are tons of reasons why people are getting CAD younger and younger in this country. And also there can just be bad genetics where you're just a patient that has bad coronary artery disease as a young person. Certainly things that we do as humans that can increase our risk for CAD, but we won't go into those today. We just know that this can be an issue. Mm -hmm. And then definitely considering these congenital heart diseases, of course, including the long QT syndrome as a culprit to uh, VT, both sustained and non-sustained. But prolonging the, um, the QT can be from drugs or medications. And we'll talk a little bit more about the medication-induced prolonged QT shortly here. Yeah, there's so many common medications we prescribe without thinking about it um, that can prolong the QT. There's other issues like electrolyte abnormalities, potassium, sodium, calcium, magnesium, stimulant use, okay, cocaine, methamphetamines, different diseases, Kawasaki's disease, sarcoidosis, preeclampsia, myocarditis, chronic kidney disease can all contribute towards having uh, somebody go into VTAC. And there can be many, many more. And like, um, I, I have to go back for a second to talk about scarring of the heart. You know, we'll probably get some angry emails. Bring them. I'm okay with that, right? We've recommended young people get multiple COVID-19 vaccinations, okay? Young people, certain colleges are mandating that you get your new COVID-19 booster. Otherwise, you can't stay in college. And we know, we know that even though no, there's nobody that is like laid up in the hospital still months after getting a COVID-19 vaccination. We know there is a non-zero number of young people, usually men who have gotten the vaccinations, had myocarditis. Did they recover? Sure. Like they're not in the hospital still. Could they still be on medications? Yeah. Could they have a scar on their heart? Yeah. 
And so there are people out there who are getting heart scarring from many different situations to include vaccinations, to include smoking. We didn't mention yet, but, but you know, uh, you know I, I ha- I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about how sometimes we are doing harm to people causing these scars that could lead them into VTAC. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in regards to all these known causes, Mike, I'm 41 years old. I have no cardiac history aside from what I've already told you, the supraventricular tachycardia. I've had prior echoes. They were all normal. The only other weird thing that I had was preeclampsia, but I didn't have a cardiomyopathy associated with that. And that was nine years ago. I don't do drugs (laughs) and I don't have any reason to uh, have these other causes. I do have a significant family history of V-fib arrest. My dad's sister, my aunt, who ended up getting a D-fib pacer. Oh, wow. Um, And I do have sleep apnea. And unfortunately, Mike, I did smoke for almost two decades. You know, I I know horrible, right? But I worked night shift most of my career. That's how I learned as much as I did, but but chose not to listen uh, about the problems of nicotine. Um, I worked... um, with a lot of respiratory therapists at midnight every night that said, let's go have our smoke. And that is not a lie. So I, I, I did have quite a significant smoking history. So I immediately thought to myself, oh, you know, I, I did myself in. This is finally what I'm mm. suffering from. Um, so let's talk about some other uh, cases that could potentially present to your ER. Skip me for a second. Um, and how they might come to be. Like, think to yourself, when we're telling you these cases, do they sound familiar? And what did you do when you talked to them? Let's chat about what you would do for a young, otherwise healthy person, such as yourself. Right. I mean, we just like earlier I talked about paresthesias and someone coming with weird paresthesias. We will forever get people, young 20 or 30-year-old people with no medical issues, and they come in because they passed out. And by the time they get to us, they're fine. They're not having recurrent episodes, but they had an episode where they, they passed out for some reason. And of course, you burn an EKG, and the nurse hands it to you, usually while you're in the middle of doing something, and they say, hey, the rhythm looks good right now. Uh, yeah, sure, like in this moment, in this snapshot of time, the rhythm is not concerning, but we didn't have any information on them during their episode. Like, could it have been unrelated to a uh, arrhythmia? Could it have been SVT? Could it have been VTAC? Um, the hard part is we may never know. And that's so like that's so frustrating on my part. Um, and, and even more so the patient's part. I have no idea why you passed out, you know. Um, maybe it happens even later on in life, like um Will Flannery, Dr. Glockenflecken, right? Like his story is crazy. Um, I think it's the Burnt podcast where um, they play recordings of his wife. Uh, on the on the line, not on one. Basically, Dr. Glockenfleck and the guy who does all these funny social media medical things, right? He went into sudden cardiac arrest in the middle of the night. Still don't know why as far as we know, um, but his wife did CPR on him for 10 minutes while the paramedics arrived to his house. Um, I'm pretty much done in after about two, two and a half minutes of CPR. So like, she must have some like amazing cardio to have handled that. Well, there are some really interesting studies that look at women's endurance during times of crises. I mean, it's an actual thing. Huh. Not not saying that men don't also have those abilities, but there is, of course, uh, there are things that our body can do that we are surprised that we can do. You know, you think you can only do two minutes, Mike, but if it's your kid or your wife right. or, yeah. you know, or me, you know, you're going to be on that chest until you die yourself. But anyway, yes, that story 
um, about his sudden cardiac arrest due to his arrhythmia is on social media. I I did post this interview that he did with a paramedic, the paramedic mm. that saved him along with the um, team. And I, it, I listened to it. It's about an hour and it was really phenomenal because it was occurring during COVID and it really talked about the selflessness of these human beings uh, um, and really emotional YouTube video of him thanking them in person from afar with their masks on, like when he oh, recovered wow. and it just, just, Oh my God, the emotion. I was, I was crying. Of course I'm like, geez, what's, what's next here. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll put that in our liner notes. So incredible. Right. So that's one kind of rough group of patients, the patient with no known risk factors with syncope, that is from question mark, who knows, right? Didn't eat enough, drink enough, or did, was it a an arrhythmia? Another rough group of people is young patients with known risk factors, okay? Like the, the 30-year-old who has a methamphetamine use disorder. Um, you, you know this person, they're always coming in intoxicated. And in the lobby, he whips out his crack pipe and, and, and does a huge bump of crack and like he arrests in the waiting room like i'm waiting for that to happen sometimes like hearing you know code blue emergency department waiting room okay it's 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 happened before it will happen again um so in those situations where we have somebody with known risk factors with acute exposure to a sympathomimetic like cocaine or methamphetamines that's probably from some sort of cardiomyopathy and that arrhythmia was just gonna happen you know the more cardiomyopathy you accumulate the more likely you are to have an arrhythmia. And then, and then you have folks who just over the course of time, you know, like you accumulate atherosclerosis, you accumulate risk factors, hypertension, dyslipidemia. And so another group of patient is, is that group of patients, older gentleman or lady post MI has known severe atherosclerotic coronary disease, and they have a syncopal episode or, or arrhythmia. And that can be a group of people that has ventricular tachycardia as well. Yeah. You know, a couple other thoughts of patients, you know, possibly a patient with severe nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea that's now hypokalemic, which can lead to this direct electrophysiological effect of early after depolarization and prolonged action potential duration, which culminated into a dysrhythmia like VT or VFib or even torsades. Then there's a case of someone who tells you about a recent polypharmacy they've been taking, and that's where they get the prolonged QT syndrome. And we want to mm. remind you of those drugs, although we've talked about them on many shows before. As a reminder, there are lots of things that cause arrhythmias, VT and others, but drug-induced VT is an interesting case for sure. Some known offenders include our antipsychotics like Haldol, um, and uh, olanzapine and risperidone and droperidol. So think about those antipsychotics. Um, also our antiarrhythmics like amiodarone, sodalol, uh, procanamide, uh, flecainide, antibiotics like macrolides or fluoroquinolones, some antidepressants, um, certainly our amitriptyline and others. And thinking about methadone, sumatriptan, Odansetron or Zofran, and Cisapride. So there are lots of other drugs. We haven't listed them all. Certainly rare disorders that can also cause VT. But there are also just idiopathic causes of VT. I can think of several patients who it would not surprise me that they were 
already chronically on haloperidol or quetiapine, Seroquel, and then they're on a macrolide antibiotic plus on dantrazone. Like azithromycin, a macrolide antibiotic. So they're taking a little Z-pack from somebody, and they got a little Zofran from somebody, and they happen to already do citalopram as well. Like I can totally see somebody in my in yours too. Like you know the the community hospital, the the, the sorry the, the county hospital patient population who is on multiple medications that could do stuff like this. Well, that was a definitely good overview. Let's move on to the workup and treatment of somebody who either comes in fine now, but with a recording of VTAC that is thankfully over, or somebody who happens to be on a monitor and goes into brief non-sustained VTAC right there on the monitor. Right. So some kind of proof of VTAC, right? Which even if you don't have proof and proof you're suspicious of an arrhythmia, you should definitely pursue the workup and treatment for that as you would um, regardless if you have the strip or not. But mm. having the strip is certainly enough proof. <laughs> After listening to hours, literally hours of lectures from some of the major leaders in coronary care, um, the general consensus uh, that I found was pretty much don't freak out right away. Okay. Um, about that non-sustained did, VTAC, because what we're yes, talking about. about about non-sustained, excuse me. About, I'm sorry, back to me. Okay, back to me <laughs> and my problem. Um, I, God, I must have, you know, of course there'd be some, there'd be anything on the internet. Uh, and certainly in our previous courses, I went back and watched Diane Birnbauer talk. Mm. I called Rick Bucata. I called, I, well, I, I, I won't tell you the other people that I contacted because- they want to remain anonymous because you can't contact them at work. Um, but anyway, so generally, don't freak out about non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. Many of the experts who talked about um, the NS- NSVT um, talked about PVCs first. And what I found is that the question is often, is this the chicken or the egg? So which came first, the PVCs? or the structural heart disease. So then, of course, is there an underlying disease? We think about that. And all of these things for an ER clinician, basically to figure out on their own and do a workup and treatment. Now, you need to have cardiology and the EP experts really weigh in. And if you're an NP or PA taking care of this patient, talk to your attending. Please get them involved. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like, I'm in a practice setting where I do see and discharge a lot of patients independently. But with this, this is definitely something I'm calling somebody in for my attending and and the, um, the, the specialist here. So generally, the workup of somebody with a confirmed NSVT, of course, you're doing a thorough history and physical. Of course, you're going to do a 12-lead EKG um, off of that kind of, you know, three-lead that you got that confirms the NSVT. The uh, EP, the electrophysiology, specialists that you're going to be contacting rely on that EKG, and they can really scour that along with you to look for any sort of patterns or clues that suggest certain pre-existing conditions, either acute illnesses or ongoing disease processes that can cause PVCs, that can cause NSVT. And then we're going to get, you know, your CBC, your CMP, troponin, and then an echo because we're trying to find, again, scarring or some sort of other wall movement abnormalities uh, more acutely. If those are persistent, despite the person feeling good, if you see these persistent, you know, maybe assumed new wall motion abnormalities, then maybe we're going to admit that person for more aggressive testing. Or, Or, depending on your practice setting, maybe you can discharge them. You meaning the team, you attending cardiologist can discharge somebody. Maybe you have the ZO patch 
in your hospital that, that Martha has here, some sort of a other recorder. Um, an MRI can be helpful at some point. If you're being admitted, then that can happen in his admission. But of course, if being discharged, you can have that as an outpatient. And that may also further show underlying pathology. Um, the echo can also show your EF, your ejection fraction, in addition to any sort of wall motion outer maladies. When you read folks who you know, write about NSVT, they all suggest that if the uh, random PVCs are, and I'm, I'm making sure I'm parsing this correctly here, if the random PVCs are maybe between 10 and 35% of the usual beats, you know, of the, the total beats you have, you know, in, in, in the EKG or on the monitor, if the random PVCs are only 10 to 35% of those beats, that should not throw off your ejection fraction. But That's right. once, once we're getting into higher percentages of your beats being PVCs now, uh, or, or even having non-sustained VTAC, then that can go into decreasing your ejection fraction. Maybe that points towards cardiomyopathy or other valvular or structural abnormality. So really that, that 35% is the number. If it's below 35%, it's another suggestion that maybe we can kind of more slow play this a little bit and be a little bit less concerned. Yeah, you know, I listen to, like I said, a lot of experts talk about this. I'll talk about one from Penn Medicine shortly, but essentially, like, it's like after a certain amount, you know, above 35% of these PVCs, it's like they took a shotgun and just kind of, like, you look at these point graphs when they looked at retrospective analysis of these patients and, and their prognosis and their morbidity and mortality, like, below that range, patients with PVCs, whatever, like, you just have some PVCs, it's no big deal um, most of the time. Um, but then you kind of get into this territory afterwards where it's just like all over the place. And, and we don't necessarily have uh, a great little narrow percentage because you see 10 to 35 percent here. But half of your beats, if they're PVCs, that's then not you great. St- you're, you're, that's bad. OK, so the but same anyway. point is greater than 35%, that there's a yep. clear line. If yep. you're over 35% having PVCs, there's a lot more morbidity mortality associated with that. Yep. Fair? Okay. And, <clears throat> yes, and there are very specific recommendations and algorithms by cardiology and EP experts and from the AHA for ventricular arrhythmias or dysrhythmias, workup and treatment. Even by Gemini, actually, can be DC'd home, um, depending on the symptoms and the history from the ER. So that's a lot of PVCs. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm not saying that it's something I do every day, but certainly, uh, patient, again, cardiology consultation, cardiology consultation. There are many factors to consider. Uh, this leads to the final recommendation, like we said, was cardio cardiology consultation and really getting that echo. It's so important that if you can do it, if it's four o'clock and you need to get it in before five, see if you can get it in that day. Um, also, um, if you see it on the screen in any way, shape, or form, document it. You know, you had mentioned that this EKG is what like, you know, we get the EKG, great. But what I think a lot of clinicians don't understand, I mean, our physician partners certainly do, but some of our younger junior clinicians is that that cardiologist, that EP specialist can look at every single lead. And there are, like you said, patterns. But what's most important is that the issues in the ventricle, they're, they're pretty uh, consistent of where they have problems. So like if they see this, then it probably is going to be that. So that EKG, that repeat EKG, that rhythm strip, get them 
save them, and leave them for analysis from our experts. It's very, very important that they have as many as possible. And don't feel bad about repeating an EKG ever, um, especially if there's you know a lot of baseline sway. Okay. Um, what was most interesting to me was I listened to this talk from Penn Medicine, I think it was like 2015 or 16, from Dr. Frank Marchlinski. He's a renowned electrophysiologist, and he examines ventricular arrhythmias, including PVCs, and then ventricular ectopic beats, VPDs, and non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. He delves into the origin, the idiosyncrasies and management, and gosh, darn it, he does it in 23 minutes, and he makes this into such a digestible bite that I... I I really wish that I could meet this guy. I mean, fantastic. I, I really recommend listening to this 23 Minutes. It cleared up so many misunderstandings I think I had about myself as a patient, but also about the likelihood of me having cardiac arrest. Um, however, I'll get to that in a second. So we talked a lot about these non-serious problems in patients with arrhythmias originating from the ventricles. But again, he also spoke about the the fatal, rare, sustained VTAC and VFib that leads to the sudden cardiac arrest. Again, he mentions that it's rare, so it does give me hope. But of course, this is where I decided to take some copious notes for all of you. The majority of PVCs or VPDs and like I and other arrhythmias, like I said, have areas that the heart um, are very well known to have structural abnormalities um, and guess what we can do? We can ablate them once they're found, or we can fix them once they're found. And this is a chance to stop this arrhythmia. And once that origin is identified in that anatomical site, they can do amazing things. And that's another podcast for sure. I mean, I'm going to have an EP study. I'm going to have some mapping, and I'm probably going to be ablated. And I can't wait to um, be alive and share that with you. <laughs> but something to consider is that structural heart disease patients with VT should make you possibly consider that the patient has had ischemic VT, okay? If the patient has runs of non-sustained VT, do your homework because you want to look to see if there's any ST changes in the EKG. There could be coronary artery spasms. And again, that would be treated in a different way. In fact, this is where it gets into the, the question of should we use calcium channel blockers? Should we use beta blockers? Um, I don't want to put us too far down a rabbit hole here. But really what I wanted to share with you is that most of the time PVCs and VPDs, and even an event of this non-sustained VT, are benign. Although quite annoying and can cause serious worry. What I loved most about this physician is he goes, um, I've had this happen and I really, I know what it feels like for patients. And when mm. I sit with them and I talk to them, I see them, you know, the tears, fighting the tears behind their eyes and, and wondering, am I gonna die today? And also this is really freaking annoying. Um, it, it just, I really, I, I loved his physician insight, his expertise, his knowledge, his non-condescending attitude, and his ability to really break this down. There are so few teachers in the world that are able to do that. And, and I really suggest that you watch him and listen to this. Um, remember that when you're not sure, uh, sustained or non-sustained VT is definitely something to work up and potentially treat. Um, give some assurance to your patients as well. And, you know, do your homework, get a little better. It's not like a scope creep for you to further your education in cardiology. I highly recommend 
at you be as educated as you possibly can. Renew your CPR, renew your ACLS and PALS. Um, and that's my, my soapbox for that. You mentioned we're going to have that uh, lecture. Uh, it's what PVCs, VPDs, and NSVT, when to worry, how to treat, right from Penn Medicine? Correct. Okay. So, well, 23 minutes. I mean, like, this is, these are potentially life threatening issues. So, I think 23 minutes is, is definitely worthwhile to donate towards this. Uh, there's other things that, you know, your EP, your consulting may take. And that's just kind of dependent on a lot of things like personal preference, as well as what's available in your uh, facility once this patient gets admitted, or maybe as an outpatient, they'll get it. Their echo we mentioned. Um, they might, trend some biomarkers and other labs in the hospital. And then in terms of advanced imaging, you know, MRI, we mentioned coronary CT angiogram. Okay, that's yeah, kind so of- I- I want to interrupt you for just a second, Mike, yeah. because CT, CT um, coronary angiogram is a very fascinating test. It has to be a very specific machine and a very specific radiologist that can read this. So it's actually a very good test for a lot of different things. Yes. However, um, if you don't have the right person to read it, then then some facilities like my previous institution in, in uh, Vermont, where we were a small facility, I could actually do the test, but I didn't have a radiologist to read it. So therefore, I couldn't order it, which How is funny. very interesting. Yeah. So you need to know whether or not you can order this test or not. So uh, don't just go right to the CT coronary angiogram, um, but it, it's a fascinating test and there's some really cool things on the horizon. And and just to comment, yeah, EP mapping and considering, of course, this pacer defibrillator, um, don't rush to tell patients to order things off of Amazon, but we still occasionally <laughs> put people in those little suits, the shock suits, that like the little vest. Oh, I mean, the life our, vest, right? Is that what they call yeah, that? Yeah, we put kids in it all the time. Um, but- Anyway, medication balancing and more, the stuff that we do. The BMJ has best practices listed for the workup and treatment, but really look at these 2017 AHA, ACC, and HRS guidelines for the management of patients with ventricular arrhythmias and the prevention of sudden cardiac death. Honestly, if you have five to nine years to go through these recommendations, I recommend reading the entire booklet. I certainly will be doing that over the next week, but it might take me, gosh, I hope I live long enough to read them. Oh, gosh. Um, for now, I want everyone to start with that EKG. First, start with the EKG for palpitations, presyncope, chest pain, um, actual syncope, known electrolyte issues, shortness of breath, known cardiac disease, known arrhythmia. When a patient presents to the ER, add that on immediately. And then get the labs. Get your CBC, biomarkers, CMP, et cetera. Consider the underlying causes and medication history, all whilst keeping cardiology on hand to do the best thing for the patient every single time. Yeah, I teach EKG interpretation at a couple schools to PA programs. And I just, I love it because it's just like, it's it's almost like a cheat code. When you know how to read an EKG and, and, and you know, the things you can diagnose if you know to look for them, it's really impressive. Now, that being said, you know, sometimes you have severe electrolyte abnormalities. You have other things that are truly emergent and they don't show up on the CT, or the EKG rather. But when yeah. you do... That can you can be from minute five, minute ten of this person visit already directing your workup down a certain pathway. So yeah, yeah. EKG early and then let's work on all right, what allows are gonna order based on the EKG we see. Yeah. Take all complaints of palpitations seriously. It's mm -hmm. not just anxiety, people. It's really not. There's actual issues going on. I'm not freaking anxious, okay? And it's amazing. That I'm still, I mean, I'm looking at the tracing right now. I can't believe that I had that. And I stop looking at it. I can't stop looking at it. Mike, what's going to happen to me? Honestly, <laughs> I'm so upset. Well, you heard them, right? Like, let's it's a, end a, the show. <laughs>
you, you, you heard this guy talk, you know, brief episodes not concerning for more serious stuff. I, I think you, like, we haven't talked about it yet, honestly, but I just, what I would have told you offline is what I'm telling you right now is I think you just take it um, one step at a time. You know, right now you have this thing that is not apparently concerning, and then you just kind of uh, work, work, work the process like you would for a patient that was under your care. You know, the one thing that really I added to my list of things to learn from this is that when I was younger, I never really thought smoking was going to cause heart issues, you mm. know, if if this is related to smoking at all. But for patients that say, I just can't quit, quit smoking, like I'm not going to get lung disease, you know, look at my aunt, she lived to be 100 and she never got lung disease. It's not just lung disease. Nicotine is such a horrible stimulant for specifically for the ventricles. I read article after article about mm. smoking affecting the ventricles. I, I mean- Again, this seems very straightforward. Don't smoke. It's bad. But for patients that maybe need a different way to quit smoking, I've offered these suggestions before. Think about telling them, hey, you know, it doesn't just cause lung cancer and respiratory issues. It can, it can literally stop your heart. Yeah. So don't smoke, kids. Don't do it. Terrible. Well, thanks for, thanks for being so brave as to... To share all this with you, like I really commend, um, you know, Chip uh, two podcasts ago. He went into his myasthenia story. Um, I just got a text from him um, while we were doing this um, podcast. Okay, so he's he's doing okay today. He's he's doing well, you know. Um, but I think he ha he actually had to go into the hospital since our last boot camp. He had a little episode of a myasthenia crisis, but he's he's through that right now. You've got your unsustained um, VTAC. And I'm like looking at myself going like, oh my gosh, what's going to, bad things come in threes, right? So like what do I have to deal with here coming up? So, so, uh, ugh. Well, but again, th thanks to Chip and, and then thanks to you, of course, uh, for being so open about uh, what you're going through and, and how it's affecting you as a clinician and, you know, not just um, day to day, what do you do going to work? Do, you, do I pack my, do I pack my lunch pail or pack my AED? Like, what do I, what goes with my AED? You know, how am I going <laughs> to accessorize with this? But, but thanks for sharing how it can affect also our patient care and how we, we treat our patients. Yeah. Yeah. I'll keep you posted, Mike. Thanks. All right. It's time for our two view trivia answer for the questions from our last podcast. The question we posed was this. Fulgacine is derived from the autumn crocus plant. What is the mature-sounding nickname for the plant, and how did it get its name? The answer is Naked Boys, and, I, and you have to say it every time like that, okay? Naked Boys, uh, Naked Boys or Naked Ladies, because of how the flowers of the plant come out of the ground before the leaves do. And our winner is Eric Wynn. Eric is a new grad PA. He's getting his feet and the rest of his body wet in emergency medicine, and um, he's going to enjoy 20% off of one of our courses, and so we'll pass that on to Eric. Congratulations, Eric, and he wants to shout out um, all the different PAs and NPs that he works with in his department. Uh, thanks, and great job for sending that in. Our question for this podcast the American College of Emergency Physicians, ASAP, just wrapped up its most recent scientific assembly, what they call their you know, national conference. And I was really excited to see a PA presented at ASAP. This PA, just to help you find it out there, by the way, presented on physician assistant intubation in the emergency department. That was his topic. So our two-part trivia question is this. Who was the PA that presented at ASAP this year, and where does he practice? 
Very cool. Email us your two-part answer in addition to anyone you'd like to give a shout out to, as well as any feedback or comments about our episode and send them to our two view cast at gmail.com. That's the number two view cast, all one word at gmail.com. Well, that's our show. Uh, more information on our recently uh, launched Managing Pediatric Emergencies course. That's going to be available for streaming very shortly, if not already. Maybe by the time you hear this, it will be ready. Uh, the original and advanced emergency medicine boot camps, that emergency medicine and acute care course, 2024 dates are available now, kids, or any of our courses are available at the Center for Medical Education website. That is cc- www.ccme.org, www.cc cme.org. New and upcoming courses this year include so many fun things. So come hang out with us. Check out all our information on our website, the boot camp again, December 12th through 15th. Procedures, ultrasound and pharmacology course two days before the camp. And then of course, if you can't make that, there's one in July of 2024. Well, thanks for listening and attending this podcast of the two of you. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Google Podcasts is going away. I'm um, really upset about that, frankly. That is my preferred podcatcher. So um, shortly we'll be changing that part of our outro. Search for two view emergency. That's the number two view emergency. It'll come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians can get some two-view goodness. We'd really appreciate you doing that for us. If you like YouTube and want to see the video blog instead, you can see Martha's animal print blouse or my fetching button down. You can search for Center for Medical Education on YouTube, and you can catch the video version of this podcast. Oh, and you can see Martha's uh, non-sustained VTAC strip as well. Mm-hmm. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and websites and such we referred to today. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to my story. And thanks to all the friends in EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks again for sharing your time with us at the Two View. Have a good day and a great shift.